Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Weekly Weights. I'm Will. With me is Alex, and after months and months of us joking about having corporate sponsorship, we actually do this time. This episode is brought to you by City Strength. City Strength is an Australian online store for powerlifting and strength training apparel, and they're the exclusive distributor for SBD in Australia. You can check out their whole range at citystrength.com.au. That's one word, citystrength.com.au. And if you want to try before you buy, you can visit their shop in Marrickville, which is located at City Strength HQ. They're offering 10% off for listeners of Weekly Weights. So at checkout, all you have to do is enter Weekly Weights 10. That's again, one word, all capitals, Weekly Weights 10. And it's going to be valid until midnight, the 20th of April. So check out City Strength. Thank you. Welcome to episode 47 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex. I'm here with Will. And we're joined by Bryce Lewis today over the internet. Say hey, Bryce. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. So a quick intro about Bryce. Bryce is the owner and head coach of The Strength Athlete, which is an online coaching business with hundreds of powerlifting athletes. He's a 105-kilo powerlifter himself, two times uh, USAPL national champion and 2018 IPF world champion. He has held IPF world records in the bench press and in the total. And he has a keen interest in sports psychology, which is what we're going to talk to him today about. So thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you. Actually, second TSA coach we've had on after Hanny. Yeah. Do you remember which episode Hanny was? I think like 18. 18 or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, back in the halcyon days. Anyway, thanks so much, mate. So what got you into sports psychology? That's question one. Yeah. Um, so I'd say the main interest started when I absolutely shit the bed uh, during a competition. And <laughs> Man, you can't swear on this podcast. Yeah. What's that? You can't swear on this podcast. Oh. No, I'm kidding. No, nah, we're fucking with you. We swear all the time. Go for it. <laughs> like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm one minute in. I already messed up. <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. Um, yeah, I, I just had a really horrible experience in a competition, and um, it wasn't for lack of being ready. It was for all these other factors of, of being nervous about performance and overthinking things and focusing on my competitors and all this kind of stuff. And I, I thought... Um, that if I'm feeling stuff like this, then a lot of people that I'm working with are feeling things similar to this too. And I better look into this if I want to be able to be a better coach and provide more. Our motto at TSA is comprehensive powerlifting coaching. And if we're missing out on, on big pieces, then we're not being comprehensive. Um, do you mind if I jump in quickly? How far yeah. into your powerlifting career was that? Um, that was in 2015. So um, really some of those those big nerves um, came up only when I was under a lot of pressure in a, uh, an international competition or let's say a high national competition. So it was, it was a good six, six years into being a powerlifting competitor. Yeah. Right. Cause that's something maybe down the track we can talk about a little bit. A lot of the people sort of manifest those same nervousness issues at very low level competitions and early in their career. But the stresses of competing internationally and as a representative are very different to that. So I'm wondering, what was it specifically that triggered that nervousness in you? So I think, uh, you know, people can experience a range of, of uh, issues when it comes to sports psychology at, at even 
beginning levels, like when you're just starting off. But I think things just tend to get amplified the higher up in level of competition you go. Um, and, and a certain range of things come out when competitiveness enters the picture. So if you're just competing for yourself and you're not really uh, at risk uh, or in hopes of winning um, either national records, state records, uh, you know, wins, anything like that, um, then you can just kind of carry on with your way and just focus on yourself. But as soon as you have to focus on beating other people or if I make this lift, then I win. If I don't, then I lose. Like there's, there's a, a whole different degree of pressure there that uh, can really play with people's minds. Yeah. The stakes are much higher when you get to that level. Do you remember yep. exactly which competition this was? Oh, I do. It was uh, the Arnold in 2015. Okay. How'd you go? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it was a big competition and it was the first time I was at the Arnold and um, there was a, uh, just a whole different atmosphere there. Like the energy was really high. There's a lot of people, music's loud. Um, and even though like it's not a national championship, it just felt so big. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. I wasn't ready for it. And so, so did you immediately sort of diagnose your issue with performance that day as being mental? Um, like, did you look over your peak and go, Oh, maybe I fucked up along the way here. Or did you go straight away? No, that was just, that was the brain giving out. Um, no, it, it really was kind of the brain giving out, like the strength was probably there, but I mean, I remember vividly just kind of feeling like I was watching myself go through that day. Um, kind of almost from a third perspective, just like, uh, I was on a train and, and just kind of going, going along with it. It was, it was crazy. You know, after squats, I was just kind of crying and like, just not having fun and, like that made it worse just realizing that I'm not having fun. And like, I, I couldn't ever write the ship that day and get back to a place of feeling in control and feeling that I was kind of able to, you know, make amends and, and lift some weights. And so then what was the first port of call for you to try and rectify that? Where'd you first go to start learning? Um, so I first went to my coach, just, just not for like learning, but just to kind of console me and just say, Hey, like it's okay this happens to a lot of people. Let's figure out what's going on. And, and, um, I, I, you know, I've kind of heard about some sports psychology concepts, um, looked into a little bit of self-determination theory was kind of one of the first big things like theory of motivation. How are we motivated? Um, when does motivation break down and how can we fix that in athletes or, or at least try to, um, and then from there, a, a lot of it is just opening up, sports psychology textbooks and flipping through the chapters and seeing what are the techniques available? Uh, what are even the issues that sports psychology is concerned with? How can we address those? Yeah. Cool. So a lot of self-study, I guess. Cool. So I guess our next question is, um, what are the differences in psychological demands between powerlifting and other sports? So, um, Powerlifting is an individual sport, which differs a lot from team-based sports, at least. Um, in team-based sports, at least one thing that's different is that you can share your wins and share your losses as well. So the losses don't feel quite as steep, and the wins feel a little bit sweeter because you get to share them with more people in the sense that you all contributed to this overall goal. Um, it's easier to share some of the hardships uh, of motivation, of struggle during training when things are difficult. It's not just you going through this. It's you plus a whole team of other people going through this. So um, that's really one way that 
individual sports are in some ways more difficult, or at least you lean a lot more on your immediate social support network, your training partners or your coach or something like that. Um, in powerlifting specifically, there's a more make or break element that's more similar to um, speed, strength, power sports in like track and field where you have a really small number of attempts to succeed. So it, it's really different from, let's say, a football game where the match is, you know, two hours long or something like that, or, or hockey or um, even running, any type of distance sport, et cetera. You've got three lifts at the squat, and you've got one chance at your heaviest one uh, on your squat, your bench, and your deadlift, and you better be able to perform or you don't get another shot. So in that sense, there is more pressure to perform when it counts uh, and duplicate what you're capable of doing. Another, another aspect of powerlifting competition psychology that Alex and I have mentioned earlier on the podcast as well is that unlike sports, say, maybe rugby is the one that's most familiar to us, unlike sports like that where the interchanges are nearly constant in powerlifting, your attempts are separated by you know, eight to 10 minutes sometimes more as well. And then you've got however long between warming up for, you know, squat, bench and deadlift and things to really dwell on your performance. So if you're not able to control your mind and your emotions in those times, they can quickly run ahead of you when you don't actually have any meaningful way to like express yourself um, in performance. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is in other sports, like you don't even have a chance to breathe before you're just back in action and you can mm -hmm. kind of stay in a flow state or, or a state of optimal performance a little bit longer. In powerlifting, I mean, it could be a benefit and it could be a drawback in that maybe if, if a lift didn't go well, like you've got a whole 10 minutes to kind of regroup and, and get yourself ready for the next attempt. Or uh, if things aren't going well, you have that whole whole time to dwell on how things didn't go right. Depends mm. on how you look at it. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you've already in the past few minutes mentioned a few um, psychological like models and constructs. So the one you just mentioned was a flow state. Do you mind sort of just explaining what that is and why that's beneficial to performance? Sure. Uh, a flow state um, is a state of optimal performance that has something to do with high levels of focus and ease of performance. So people have described it as not thinking about uh, the task and at the same time performing at a high level. Uh, almost being automatic on autopilot, um, being able to free your mind to think about other things. So maybe uh, tactical elements of, of different sports or things like that. And usually it comes about in things where you are repeating something uh, with relatively low effort. So sometimes with uh, driving or um, even doing routine tasks or in the house or um, or things like that. So, um, so something interesting about the flow state, I've, I did one unit of sports psychology, so I know just enough to not know much. Um, something interesting about the flow state. So in competition, the flow state is what you're after. You want to sort of minimize anxiety, maximize performance and feel automatic. But there's this concept of deliberate practice, which is where you're mentally invested in improving performance. And part of deliberate practice involves actually avoiding the flow state. So I often say to my athletes when we're working on technical changes and things in powerlifting that they won't necessarily feel easy because you're deliberately investing mental effort in doing something slightly different or doing something rather than just letting what is natural occur. And 
And what, I, what I'd love to get your take on is whether there's value in having certain sessions or having practice competitions or something where you deliberately go for more of like a flow state of performance and whether there's times when you would coach an athlete to have that more deliberate practice approach of, of mental investment and mental effort in what they do. You know what? Um, I am not too sure on even the application of flow state for powerlifting specifically, just because it seems to come about with higher repetition. So things like uh, marathon runners can get into a flow state or athletes who are doing lots of repetitions or something like that with, with one rep. Uh, I don't really know if in competition, at least there's a chance to get into a flow state, not that you can't develop a ritual and you can't perform at a high level, but I feel like flow state is, is something slightly different. Um, and, um, and I think it's something to do with like an optimal level of performance. So you're right on deliberate practice. I think, I think that's extremely important. And I think that the difference is if you have an athlete who is at more beginner stages, even intermediate stages where you're working on technique or body positioning or something like that, um, deliberate practice is extremely important in making them aware of what you're trying to change and, and how to change it and stuff like that. Um, at some point you want to switch to things feeling more automatic at least. Um, and I think even automatic or automaticity is different than flow state. Um, but you're right. There, there is a time and a place in practice for deliberate practice. And there's a time and a place for things to like, just lift, just focus on, uh, the execution uh, of the task. Yeah. Cool. So oh, Alex, go. yeah, that's, that's good that you say that. Cause it's very similar to the way that I'll coach my athletes through a competition prep. The early stages is about learning and refining. And then later on, you just let them go and just do it. Like all those things just come into practice and it's just, don't even think just, just do. And I, I say this all the time, like when I'm teaching, let's say the squat for an example, all the different components of the squat, the bracing, mid foot pressure, how I want pressure in the back, all that stuff. And then at the end of the day, it's just, <clears throat> it's just sit down and stand up and don't even think. And then I, I found that really, really works. And I've actually found that work for me a lot. When I would get to heavy loads, I'd be thinking too much about all the little things and that would throw me off. And my coach JP said to me, just, just do it. You've done a million squats. You know how to squat, just squat. Mm. And that really resonated with me. And that's kind of, played out into how the way that I coach that now. Yeah. I think we can anchor that idea in ritual. So mm. if you get someone used to the ritual of the setup, uh, such that it's the same exact setup every single time they go to squat, mm -hmm. um, now all of a sudden they don't have to think about it anymore. It's, it's, they're starting down the tunnel of putting their hands on the barbell and everything is automatic from there. Yeah. Um, I, I almost have like an implicit rule of, not talking about technique inside of four weeks from a competition just because I don't want to kind of disturb these motor patterns that these athletes have worked so hard to, to build. For sure, man. And that's something, again, it's kind of parallel. It parallels something that Chad Wesley Smith recently said on a video when he was talking about coaching and queuing, where he said the number of cues that you should give should reduce as relative intensity increases. And I think, I don't know what the cutoff was. It was arbitrary. It was like 85 or 90% at that point. You should give one cue, if that, and let them do it. But it's at the lower intensities where we are doing repetition and practice and stuff where you should be giving two or three cues that are targeted. And that kind of makes sense in the phasic structure in the same way that you said, right? 
it gets competition, it's more just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've done, done it so many times, just do it. Um, yeah, I think past three cues or stuff like that, you can't even focus on that many pieces mm -hmm. unless you sequence them at mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah. Um, the next the next construct that or two constructs I wanted you to talk about, you mentioned you read up on self-determination theory and the theory of motivation. Um, are you able to give a really brief explanation of what each of them are and how they might pertain to powerlifting? Yeah, uh, this is something that really felt like an eye-opening moment as a coach when I started reading about because um, it's something that I felt a little bit helpless about before I realized, oh my gosh, you know, people have talked about this and there are ways to uh, understand motivation. Um, so when athletes say like, I'm not quite feeling motivated or something like that, now I can pry a little bit and, and start to figure out. And, and once you can diagnose a little bit, you can start to make some changes. So the idea is that um, when it comes to intrinsic motivation, um, we are motivated in kind of three large categories, and these are roughly interrelated. So um, the things that are important are autonomy, uh, the degree to which we feel we have control over our actions, and, and we, um, we kind of have uh, say in what our training looks like, or our ability to make progress, or uh, where we train, what competitions we do, all that kind of stuff. If we lose freedom of that kind of stuff, we start to feel demotivated and feel like a, a cog in a machine, kind of a, a robot or something like that. And that can feel understandably demotivating. Um, we need to feel relatedness. So a degree to which we feel we can connect with others and share our values and our experiences. This can be with teammates or coaches. Um, it's the degree to which we feel uh, we can share our experience and, and our lived uh, understanding of, of the sport. So, you know, maybe this is one reason why social networks for powerlifting are so important. This is one place we share all of our training and our struggles and triumphs and stuff like that. Um, and finally, confidence. It's the degree to which we feel we can succeed. So, you know, if, if I'm not making progress in lifting for two years in a row, I'm going to be feeling pretty demotivated. And powerlifters are pretty good at delayed gratification. You know, we can we can work for six months without getting a PR, even more, but too much of that, and and uh, we start to feel demotivated. So, training needs to be appropriately difficult, um, such that we're able to progress. So, once you know these are kind of three big pillars, you can say, oh, well, which of these seems to be the main thing that my athlete is struggling with? What am I struggling with? Why am I losing motivation? And then you can start to figure out what do I need to change in order to get myself back on the right track. I think that um, you actually wrote an Instagram post this morning about it, um, <laughs> which I've got open in front of me just so I could read it. And amazingly, you were nearly verbatim uh, <laughs> in your description just then, so it must have been front of mind. Um, I've, I've talked about this before, so yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think it's an excellent point, and it's really important. Um, the the competence aspect of that is one that I think is really like super duper important from a coaching perspective as well. And so that's, you just said it, it was that tasks are appropriately difficult. Um, <clears throat> so as coaches, what type of like practical implications does that have for things like exercise selection, load selection and load progression and stuff? It's, it's fast. So um, it doesn't have to be too complicated either. Uh, if, if athletes are hitting RPE tens all the time or they're missing reps in training even, uh, even if that's, that's the right strategy for them, um, that's going to feel demotivating. 
Mm. Um, or if everything in training is an RPE six or lower, they're not really ever feeling like they're being tested or something like that. So we want to find ways for training to feel difficult, but achievable. Um, so we're kind of constantly pushing that boundary just a little bit. And that falls perfectly in line with progressive adaptation. Um, so, you know, occasionally um, you can find training approaches where the training volume is so high um, that the athlete isn't really feeling like they're recovering from it and they're not getting chances to feel competent. Um, but, but mostly it's just making sure the training is hitting that sweet spot between being too difficult or too easy. Yeah, sure. So I think something that Alex does probably better than me <laughs> um, is keep, is keep training real. Like he, part of his philosophy, sorry to put words in your mouth is to keep training as easy as possible while still progressing athletes and progressing their, their performance. I think that's a really good thing to do. Um, do you think though that reframing parameters around like performance and difficulty to, to sort of talk about execution of the lifts is a way of changing how we appraise difficulty. Like if the only way that you assess the difficulty of the set is how close to maximal effort was it to complete the set, as opposed to how hard did I work on executing this task correctly and then structuring your feedback around the performance of a skill as opposed to just like absolute load and reps lifted. Do you think that would be an effective way of reframing that discussion for athletes so that they don't feel the need to always push RPEs high? I hope I said that clearly. Um, I'm, I'm hopefully, I'm going to ask for a clarification. Could you re-explain that so I make sure I get it? Yeah. So, so say a lot of your training is a realistic RPE 5 to 7. And yeah. so the athlete may perceive that as quite easy all the time, even if their underlying performance is improving. If as a coach you reframe discussions of their performance around their competence at the motor task. So you say, you could have gotten five more reps out in the squat, but the thing that I'm really proud of is that, you know, your weight distribution was perfect or you kept your brace or some skill that you're looking at. By talking about the, the difficulty of the task in those terms, as opposed to just absolute performance, do you yeah. think you can sort of engender more motivation in athletes? You, you absolutely can. And there's a few other good reasons to do that too. Um, so you're basically finding more ways to celebrate success with the athlete mm -hmm. instead of just measuring numerical success. You're saying, Hey, look, your technique is better. Uh, or you're executing this. Siri so just triggered on my phone. Yeah. Um, Siri's input. <laughs> that'd be great. We could podcast with Siri actually. She's amazing these days. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> So you're finding more ways to celebrate success. Um, and I think that's really important, um, especially ways that are intrinsic. So self mastery, the, the athlete is performing the lift better. Um, not that external uh, things for success are not important too. you know, everyone wants to talk about their next PR and stuff like that. But at some point, um, it's going to get harder to achieve those. And we all recognize that. And I think at times bringing the focus back towards intrinsic motivation, why am I doing this? Uh, what makes me feel good about the sport um, can make make the difference in between being the sport for four years and being the sport for 14 years. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. Alex, you got anything to add? I was going to say something, but I've forgotten. Give me five seconds. All right. Um, elevated music while Alex thinks. This is often very <laughs> slow, by the way, Bryce. When Alex thinks. You all right? Um, Alex is a little bit under the weather today as well, so he's thinking uh, slower than normal. You know, I was just reading something about um, uh, the degree of difficulty in training and mm -hmm. the occurrence of sickness. Yeah. 
workflow. This is like a, a good 20 years ago. So I kind of want to double check to make sure it's still relevant, but um, yeah, the harder training is the, the closer uh, our immune system gets depressed and, and the more likely we are to get sick. Cool. I just got sick coming off a deload. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Alex's natural, like if he has a natural circadian pattern, it goes sleep for 14 hours, wake up, have brekkie two hours later, train for three hours, but you could do it in one and then go back and sleep for a further six hours, I wake wish. up for I dinner, <laughs> wake up for dinner and then back to sleep. I wish. I love it. Yeah. A professional athlete. <laughs> yeah that's it really mediocre yeah really <laughs> mediocre special athlete all right um well the one okay if oh, Alex on, I, remember, I remember my point oh wow those those little things that go away from um the pr like you mentioned that pr might be six months away nine months away those little things that we can do in the meantime are gonna get us to that pr so getting the buy-in from the lifter with those little intrinsic things why are we doing this um, those technique things, those movement patterns, those are the things that actually get us to that PR in the first place anyway. So if we can kind of instill those sort of habits and patterns and thoughts in our lifters, that's going to get us there anyway. That's going to get us to hit those PR numbers. It's not just about those numbers. Mm, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, you don't just wake up with uh, a 20 kilo squat PR. Mm. It is, it's the days that count leading there. Um, and it's often the it's often the most boring stuff that that gets you there anyway. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Absolutely right. Okay. Um, the next. Sorry to go all the way back to my previous question. The next thing you mentioned was the theory of motivation. Um, how does that differ from self determination theory, or like what does it add? Well, self determination theory is is primarily with um, just the intrinsic part, or at least describes this kind of spectrum from intrinsic motivation through extrinsic motivation and finishing up with not being motivated at all. Um, so uh, we can talk about extrinsic motivation. These are things like uh, the PRs, you know, we mentioned uh, or even further extrinsic uh, money PRs. Uh, I mean, um, not PRs, uh, state records, national records, world records, um, sponsorships, stuff like that. Um, there's not, there's not really uh, a whole lot in terms of sponsorships, like academically, but um, yeah, there's, there's some money out there and that can certainly motivate some people. Um, but, but usually it's, it's the competition wins. Those are kind of the, the main extrinsic motivators in powerlifting competition wins or world records, national records, that kind of stuff. And so just personally, when you when you've hit records, um, you know, or won, say when you won worlds, um, might be hard to say, but like, to what degree was that that extrinsic reward important to you as opposed to sort of like the self mastery aspect? Yeah, um, it feels really good in the moment, um, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to motivate you on a daily basis, or or motivate me on a daily basis. Um, the people that are highly extrinsically motivated. Uh, end up underperforming on the whole and, and um, really have a, a range of negative uh, experiences related to the, the training on a daily basis. Um, I'd have to look up exactly what that looks like. So I'm not misquoting the research, but um, I mean, we want athletes to be primarily intrinsically motivated. They're doing this because uh, they either enjoy it or enjoy the mastery or enjoy 
you know, something related to self-determination theory. And then secondarily, uh, you know, like setting PRs or even if they like setting PRs or having extrinsic stuff, it's because, um, they just want to hit their own next PR and that just happens to be a world record or something like that. And not because they're chasing after Ed Cohn's, you know, deadlift record. Yeah. Been chasing it for a while, Ed coming for you. (laughs) In time. Um, would you say that powerlifters have to be more intrinsically motivated than any other sport athlete? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think powerlifting is really similar to a lot of track and field sports in, in the sports psychology range. So maybe it's similar to um, sprint races, similar to, um, you know, shot put and, and uh, hammer throw and other power sports like that. Um, things where usually world records are hard to break and they don't get broken very often and athletes have to work a long time on a monotonous task to make progress, mm-hmm. uh, at least at high levels. So I don't know how that breaks down as far as intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Um, I think that a lot of athletes uh, across the board are, at least the the good ones, are intrinsically motivated. But um, I would have to see. I'm not sure. But how would you compare that to a, like a team sport like rugby or <clears throat> basketball or something where like you're going at an opponent? I would say there are more chances for extrinsic motivation yeah. in other sports where they're more mainstream and there's more money available. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, you can get a Nike sponsorship and, uh, you know, there's a certain number of those up for grabs or there's, there's cameras and fame and parties and after parties. And so you're saying uh, there's no after parties at IPF worlds and <laughs> no Nike sponsorships. Yeah. No, the money's pretty dried up in piloting, <laughs> at least uh, so far. Yeah. <laughs> the worst thing is that you have to work over and over and over this monotonous task. And then no matter how much you lift, somebody's going to say their uncle benched more than you in high school or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's always true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. So let's, let's take this back to your story then. So you've gone and you've read some stuff about self-determination theory, motivation, um, flow state and so on. How did you then start applying that to your own training? Were there skills and drills and stuff that you tried to develop? Uh, I, I tried working with a sports psychologist for a little while, actually. Um, but one of the, the early problems that I tried to work on was I get really nervous when I'm squatting heavier weights. Um, what's going on? And, um, well, we try to figure out exactly what's going on here. Why is this happening? Why just on squats? Um, so some visualization stuff and some kind of a mental approach stuff when it came to the squat. So we tried... Um, thinking that every single rep is going to feel faster and move better than the rep before it. Um, We tried kind of a mantra type approach where I would say something to myself, uh, some self-affirming piece of information every single time I approached the the bar. So I think um, it was something along the lines of like, uh, I'm capable and I have what it takes to lift this weight. So I would say something like that every single time I approach the squat bar um, and just repeat that to myself and, and believe it and, and fully say it with conviction every single time I squatted. Um, and that helps. Uh, and then if you give yourself chances to display competence, so if you're actually succeeding when you're squatting, um, you take chances to really celebrate that and let that sink in. So, you know, not just go on to the very next thing, but 
you want to really celebrate the wins and you want to let those sink in and feel good and uh, make it part of you before moving on. So, you know, maybe you've kind of had a rough time of squats the past few weeks and, and you get a really good session and you want to stop and, and just acknowledge, Hey, you did some really good work today and those moved really well. And this is a real turning point And that felt really good to do that. Let's remember what that felt like. Let's remember how it felt emotionally. Let's make an effort to do that again. So that can kind of set up um, a higher likelihood of of doing that again in the future. And do you use similar motivation, like speaking to your lifters like that after they have good sessions and stuff like that now? Yeah. um, It's really hard to tell if the lifter had a good session if they don't tell you first. Mm -hmm. But if they say... um, this session felt really good for me, then you want to go full in and give them some real positive reinforcement. Um, Encourage them to say, I'm really proud of you. That was awesome. Let's do more of that again. Or that was amazing. Uh, You know, and when you celebrate the athletes, it's a real trend in, in coaches these days to celebrate the number. And you really want to celebrate the effort instead. And this is true, not only in sport, but also in education as well, um, where you celebrate the, the, the process and not the result. Yeah. Because the process is what leads to, to the result eventually. That's absolutely right. So, sorry, were you going to go on there or just, well, just, just one other thing that, um, if other athletes see you celebrating the number, they may think, Oh, I don't have that number. Therefore I'm not as good or something like that. So we get these comparisons between athletes and, we can avoid that by saying we're just celebrating the process and that's something that everyone can achieve. I think as coaches as well, that's something, again, I think that you do quite well, Alex, is that you're, you're kind of like a leader to your clients. And so when, when you say like, you know, I lifted X or Y, but I'm proud of achieving yeah, some, some intrinsic or technique related outcome that they can relate to immediately as opposed to just watching the number on the bar go up that sort of instills in them that belief that that stuff is important and valuable too on the same level. I think that's a really good thing to do. Yeah. I think you're really right on that. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned that you went through some visualization drills. Um, and I think I've seen you post about this on social media. Sorry if I'm throwing you under the bus, but what, what practices actually underpin good visualization? Well, um, this isn't something I've directly looked at the research, but um, I've talked to uh, Leanna Carr, who has a far more knowledge in this than I do. Um, she's completed her master's in sports psychology and we've had a few good long conversations. Um, and visualization is a strategy that seems to work better for some people than others. So it's not like it just works across the board. For some people, imagery is better. For some people, like a pre-lift mantra is better. For some people, visualization is better. But the the idea is uh, you want to visualize success, uh, whatever that looks like on your specific task. So talking to deadlift, um, the more real you can make it, the better off it is. So um, you you can have people come up with uh, almost a visualization script where they write out their ritual of um, everything they do going up to the barbell. Um, You want to include sights, sounds, smells, um, feelings, you know, your hands on the barbell, basically everything you can do to make that as real as possible. And that ends up being more effective overall. 
Cool. Alex, when you, when you visualize a lift, what process do you go through? Um, I just, in my head, do my routine. Yeah. And I'll just envision, just envisage the weight on the bar. That's pretty much it really. Like I, just that process of um, the setup to the walkout to the execution. So I remember I've been Googling this, trying to revise in the past 30 seconds. It's definitely not going to work. Um, but I remember at uni when we spoke about visualization, they spoke of the PETLEP model. Do you know that? I don't. Okay. So um, PETLEP's an acronym and I'd encourage people to look it up and have a look. Like, have a look. But the P stands for physical. Um, oh, goodness. Physical. So things like what are you going to hear? What are you going to feel? What are you going to see? Um, yeah. When you're performing it. The E stands for environment. So you want to envisage a realistic environment or a performance environment that's similar to what you're going to do. Then, um, then there's task, timing components, learning, emotion, and perspective components. And the perspective one's a really interesting one because I can't remember the detail of this, but whether, whether you watch yourself from a third person perspective performing or whether you, you sort of perform the task and have like the POV style like footage in your head of it actually has different implications for performance. And so something I've tried when I visualize is to do, like you said, like visualize the weight on the bar, visualize myself going through the process. But then once I've done that, also try and visualize from a third person perspective, what it will feel like for me to perform the task um, or what it will look like, I should say, for me to perform the task and to always do so in a way that's like realistic, but successful. So, you know, when I visualize myself deadlifting a new max, I don't visualize it flying up. I visualize it being hard, but successful. And it's actually so when, like when you visualize your third bench, you visualize missing. <laughs> yeah. And I visualize me leaving 300 on the floor over and over again. But, um, that might be the issue is I'm getting too realistic. <laughs> um, but yeah, the pet let model is really interesting um, and definitely worth reading up on. I just wish I'd done it prior to the episode. Uh, I think you did a good job of, of describing it pretty well there. Oh yeah. Thank you very much. I bluffed my way through uni quite well. So, so, so Bryce, talk us through, talk us through your visualization model. How do you approach um, like a third squat, for example? Um, my, my mind is relatively empty when it comes to those. And, and I lean heavily on ritual, So I don't use a lot of visualization for competitions, but I have used it really heavily in training. So, um, what works best for me is um, thinking back on a squat set that felt really good where I felt strong and where the weight was heavy and things were just moving really effortlessly. And I can remember what that felt like, where I was, how it felt and just try to put myself back in those shoes. And I've got kind of like recent memories from the past six months and one example for squat another example for bench, another example for deadlift. And if I remember that, um, it's kind of easy to put myself back in that same motor pattern and, and hopefully duplicate things better than I would have if I didn't do that. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's something that I would do from a tech, like forgetting psychology. That's something I do from a technical standpoint as well, particularly as I'm leading into a peak, if I'm having like, you know, squat singles once or twice a week, like when I always try and think of when I lasted this weight or when I did my best squats and what did I do? And that usually narrows my technical focuses because I go, oh, you know, the thing I did best was whatever it is, midfoot pressure. I'm going to focus on that this set and see if it carries across. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the kind of things that I would say to my client. Like, you know, remember this top single that you did 
the best one, best one that's ever moved. This is the thing. This is the one thing that you did really, really well. And this is the one thing that you need to do really well now. It's just that one thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Bryce, anything to add on that? Uh, no, if you can kind of take, take away that key, not only from a mental performance perspective, but physically, you're going to have a higher likelihood of getting into that perfect positioning. Yeah. So, um, the crazy thing is like small degrees in hip position or rebound in the squat or where the bar touches your chest can make such a big difference mm-hmm. in your ability to execute like small variations, especially when you're near a hundred percent of your, your capability. So yeah, being able to get exactly all the way there makes a big difference. Yeah. So I brought up, um, visualization and you said you don't do it a lot, but you lean on rituals instead. Uh, what does your ritual look like and how did this develop over time? And how does this um, change for the three lifts? A lot of it is, uh, it's similar for a lot of lifters. So, you know, it's not anything revolutionary, but um, hands go on the barbell first to make sure that the, I'm talking about squat here, um, hands go on the barbell first to make sure that they are equal distance from the center. So that I'm centered on the bar and then I'll go and dip my head underneath the bar, set my feet, take a big breath. I'm simplifying here, but taking a big breath, uh, unracking the barbell and taking my two steps backwards, resetting my feet, uh, rebracing, you know, squeezing the bar tight and then beginning my descent. Um, and then a similar ritual for, for bench press, uh, with, you know, some nods to where my feet are and my butt and shoulders and stuff like that. Um, but if you guys get a chance, you should bring on Alexander Erickson to talk about technique. Uh, he is a wonderful it's, it's coach. And what's that? He's Swedish. He is Swedish. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The equipped lifter. Uh, he's also raw, but yeah, he lifts uh, equipped. Uh, I got a chance to see him speak about how he teaches technique uh, in Dubai about a month ago, and it was awesome. But he's got he's got this funny term called muda, um, and muda is a term from Japan. And it is, it's all the unnecessary shit that people add to their technique. Um, so the idea is you want to reduce muda as much as possible and uh, as a way of optimizing technique. So I've, I've really stuck onto that word. I love it. And uh, I want to use it every chance I get. So in, in Aussie, we would say like, don't dick around or don't fight ass around. Yeah, so, fucking around. So two of my female clients, shout out Chrissy and Beck, um, used to have a habit of just spending fucking ages before they pulled a deadlift, you know, wiggling their arms and fight assing around. And I, I said to Chrissy before a third deadlift at her last nationals, you know, don't fuck around, just go and pull it. And she did less muda <laughs> and absolutely ripped it. And I've been trying to do the same for Beck, but yeah, we yeah. say dick around or fight ass around. I might use muda when there's minors around me or something. So I don't have to swear in future. That's good. What I love about uh, Australia is, is- <laughs> how normalized uh, cuss words are, or at least you guys have different words that are like actually vulgar. Mm. And the ones that we think are really vulgar are like super normal to you guys. Yeah. Hanny used to always drop the C-bomb with me because he knew that I wouldn't be offended. Yeah. He wanted to sort of make <laughs> you comfortable by swearing at you. Yeah. yeah. But the weird thing in Australia, I remember trying to explain this to an American friend at some stage is that you'll swear in different ways at people. So like, it's hard to explain, you know, I would like, I wouldn't say like, you know, fuck you or up yours cunt or something to somebody that I was really pissed off at. I'd say like up yours champ 
<laughs> or something, and then they'd really know. <laughs> Whereas if you swear at somebody, it's almost like a sign of familiarity. <coughs> um, you know, it's like it's like that first wall that you break down. It's like, oh, we're swearing around each other now, and then you soon you can like fight near each other and stuff like that, yeah. and then you then you're really comfortable That's on the great. same page. Um, so Alex mentioned to me that when you lift heavy, you often listen to really upbeat, poppy music and things like Katy Perry. Um, was that also something that was born out of this psychological process or do you just like Katy Perry? Um, no, it kind of happened by accident. I mean, not by accident, but um, I used to listen to a lot of metal um, and rock and stuff like that when I was doing more bodybuilding type of training and, and even getting into powerlifting. And, and at some point, it just got too much for me, like too much stimulation, too aggressive. or just kind of like um, not really being able to repeat good technique. Mm. And once I like chilled out a little bit on the music, um, things started to fall into place a little bit. And, and like, for me, it feels like music is a huge performance uh, boost with the right music on at the right volume and, and my head's in the right space. Like I, whether or not it's true, I feel like I can get five, five or 10 kilos out of a performance based on what I'm listening to, or at least it moves faster than it would have otherwise. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, these days it's gotta be something EDM, um, ish with, uh, kind of good messages and the words that they're saying. And, uh, you know, it's, it's gotta kind of have some bass and, some really big buildups and then that stuff just feels super good to listen to. Yeah. The, um, the one that comes to my mind the most is I think you're squatting like in the mid six hundreds and, um, you're listening to Katy Perry raw. I think yeah. that's the, that's the video that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. I've that on, on my workout playlist. I've, uh, I've got a few Katy Perry songs some Nicki Minaj. It's good times. <laughs> so I think, um, super, super Bryce instead of super bass. Yeah. <laughs> oh man no i think um this is not power thing related anymore i just like music something um something interesting about music is oftentimes like the songs you fall in love with um evoke some type of like feeling of place in you or like some type of emotion so i know that like a lot of the music that i listen to the most i first listened to when i was traveling europe when i was 19 or something and so it brings back like this memory and like emotional state of a good time. And yeah. I think there is probably something to be said for having like training music that, you know, is the music you listen to when you perform well, um, you know, for that same reason, because it like evokes that sensing you straight away. Yeah. The, that's a really positive thing. And I guess the only problem is some people have cautioned me about too much, um, not superstition, but too much that is ritual and set in place just because, Hey, sometimes you're going to go to a competition and you don't have access to your music mm. or uh, you don't have access to your lucky pair of socks or, you know, sorry about the dogs. No, it's all right. <laughs> or, or whatever those little pieces are that you feel give you your best performance. They're not always going to be there. So it's great to use them, but we need to learn that they're just tools and, and it's, and we can function without them if we want to. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Alex, much to add on that. You have your playlist available on Spotify, don't you? Yeah, it's public. Is it? Yep. What's it called? I'm not going to say it because it's got the C-bomb in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is it get a bit of C about you? No, it's not, but I should probably change it. To yeah, that. that'd be good. <laughs> I'm curious to listen to it now. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not up your alley, Bryce. It's too, um, it's like all gangster rap. 
Oh, is it? It's yeah. right up Eric uh, Bodhorn's alley, though. He loves yeah, that okay. stuff. I'll, I'll message you the name of it. Yeah, you can probably tell Alex has come from the school of hard knocks with his, you know, perfect home over. <laughs> yeah, life, life is tough on the streets, man. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. Um, we're recording from Casa de Berkman right now. We're sitting, you know, with a waterfront view. It's very difficult. Um, so the next question of whether there are sort of general psychological traits and characteristics that you... Um, that you think influence like athletic or performance ability and, um, and maybe even optimal training style for people? Well, uh, I think for high level athletes, um, mental toughness is a good thing to have. Um, so mental toughness has something to do with uh, ability to work hard, uh, without reward for a long period of time. Um, ability of being resilient to failure. So not letting failure, um, crush you and having positive coping strategies that allow you to get through some of those things in, uh, in positive ways. So negative coping strategies might be things like avoidance or shifting blame or, or things like that. Positive coping strategies just allow you to buffer those losses a little bit and get back to the good stuff sooner than you might otherwise do. Um, but as far as um, kind of personality, um, that's a little bit more open. So, you know, you can take the, the big five uh, psychology tests and, and that has you rated on five different psychological scales, things like conscientiousness and extroversion and uh, neuroticism or emotional stability and openness, neuroticism. Openness was the last one we didn't mention. Yeah, true. Openness. You said four? Five. Five. Yeah. Anyway, oh, agreeableness was the fifth one. Agreeableness. Yeah. So, you know, people talk a lot about grit uh, these days as a desirable trait, but um, a lot of the characteristics that are associated with grit are actually associated with conscientiousness. Um, so it's kind of like a redundant psychological concept, but... Yeah, I mean, if you find individuals that are high in conscientiousness, they are uh, going to have a, a better time overall. So one thing to note is if you take this test, you know, if you go through all this kind of stuff, it's not like you're stuck with what you got. And this is just who you are. And, you know, have fun not being a pro athlete if you have low levels of, of conscientiousness or, or something like that. Um, these traits are trainable. Um, you can get better at them over time through trial and error and through having good social support networks and learning from mistakes and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, just, just if you kind of start learning about some of this stuff, don't feel like you either have it or you don't. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of strongly against distinctions like that, whether we're talking about, um, your sports psychology profile, um, when it comes to the big five or whether we're talking about leverages or genetics, um, some of the best athletes I've ever seen don't have, you know, elite genetics. So, um, you know, don't feel like it's a deal breaker. So I actually did a big five personality test on Sunday morning. I woke up hungover. And so obviously the first thing I thought was, you know, what's wrong with me? I'm going to psychoanalyze. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is very normal behavior for me. So I did the big five personality test and I was, I was in like the top 10, 10 percentile or whatever so i was like 92nd percentile for pretty much everything and then agreeableness i was like sixth or seventh percentile 
So <laughs> for what it's worth. So, Interesting. Yeah. Well, I was hoping you'd say you seem agreeable so I could say I don't give a fuck what you think, which would have been <laughs> funny for people who got it. Um, but You're definitely not agreeable at all. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, as a coach, though, when you get athletes who do seem to display different personality traits to you, um, how does that influence the way in which you relate to them and maybe the way in which you program? I don't know if it influences how you, well, I guess it might, um, but not directly when it comes to some of this stuff. So um, I guess the, the main way that uh, what someone's personality seems to be when it comes to how I might program for them, if you have athletes, and sometimes it's just through trial and error, um, that just seem gung-ho and overshoot training all the time. Um, like there's a few ways to address that problem. You can talk to them about it and be like, why is this happening? Uh, do you not trust the process? Uh, you know, are, are you just, when you get in the gym, you're an animal and, and all of a sudden you can't think, or, you know, why, why do you seem to have this reaction when it comes to training? Uh, another way is you can just respond to it by making training easier and just assuming they're going to push it a little bit harder than, than they would otherwise. And, and now we get the balance that we're actually looking for in the first place. Um, but that's, that's one way where I think training can take a really big modification. Um, Outside of that, I don't know if, if there's any like substantial changes to training when it comes to um, the big five, at least. There may be some changes when it comes to some other um, genetic markers. There was a really interesting study on rugby players with salivatory testosterone levels and how you might want to change training related to that. Uh, either really hard training uh, at really high intensity training at relatively low volume or kind of the opposite spectrum, relatively easy training for a lot of training volume. Um, but I haven't gotten a chance to systematize that in any way that feels like, oh, this works for everyone. Mm. So, okay, so then when you, when you do get your athletes now and you're bringing them to competition, what type of psychological strategies do you try to employ for them to get the best performance out of them if they do exhibit these sort of anxious traits at competition? Oh, cool. So we're talking anxiety now. Um, one of the best things we can do is prepare them in advance. So a lot of uh, anxiety about competitions um, is the result of feeling like you don't have control. Um, and some of, some of that is like, well, yeah, you're not going to have control over what uh, other people are doing or the venue or the date of the competition. That stuff is, is just selected. Uh, or it's something you just don't have control over. So let's bring the focus back on what you can do, on what you can control. Let's make sure that we check that stuff off. And let's talk about expectations for the competition before the competition comes around. This is what the venue is going to be like. This is what your warm-up is going to be like. Um, this is what the travel there is going to be like. You've got your food. This is the weight cut. So basically giving them as much reassurance and information as possible. So nothing feels like chance or out of control. I had a question about, because you coach only at online athletes, is that correct? Yes. So if you don't know these people personally very well, and then you go and coach them at a competition, how are you able to then, I guess, understand this, their psychology? Uh, you ask questions, you know, with everyone, I'm, I'm not looking to like, Hey, uh, you're just about to do this competition. Will you tell me your deepest, darkest secret? <laughs> You know, like that. we're not going there. Um, very Freudian. And then you show them the ink blots and say, what are you seeing here? And they're like, exactly. my dad, I haven't seen him since. And you're like, oh shit. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's more um, <coughs> early on in the competition, maybe they're, they're weighing in or they're waiting to weigh in. Um, you ask them stuff like, hey, are you like a really hype lifter when you lift? What do you need from me? Um, you know, are you the type of lifter who relies heavily on your handler? Or you just want to be left alone and, and do your own thing? Do you listen to music? Do you need to slap your face before you go out on the platform? You know, uh, what do you need from me? And that way you can kind of cater the handling to them. Cool. So you also mentioned um, anxiety. And I've got a few lifters who get, can get anxious at competition. Um, and they're often the people who don't want to know what their openers are and they don't want to know what their attempts are before they um, step on the platform. How do you approach that? Um, I, I'll do exactly that. Um, it's not my place to really say, no, I think I know what's better for you. This is what you're going to lift. And I'm going to tell you what you lift. Yeah. Um, however, after the competition, that might be a good chance to start up a conversation and say, why do you think that is? Do you think you're not capable of lifting something? If you see it on the barbell, let's take a minute to analyze that and, and find out maybe what's going on under the surface that we can help you with. Um, or maybe, you know, you're the lifter that always just needs your third attempt to just be blind and, and enter that in. I know a lot of high-level athletes who just want to lift. They want to be the soldier, and they just they have the attitude and competition of, I'm going to lift whatever's on the barbell. It's your job to put the load on the barbell, and we've got this agreement, and that's fine. Yep. So yep. it's not necessarily a problem to be solved. It's really interesting when it happens. Um but if the lifter is anxious, if they're experiencing kind of negative effects from this, that's really something that we really want to take a look at. Yeah, it comes back to the thing we spoke about earlier with the closer you get the competition, the more it just has to be just go and do it. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, so look, be ready. Yeah. Something that I have observed is a lot of my athletes who are the most anxious about environmental factors particularly, so stuff that is actually outside their control it's sort of a manifestation of their attitude that they're not really in control of their performance in general. Um, so they're, they're often the athletes who will say, you know, I don't know why squats felt bad today. And then they're also the same athletes who come to me and say like if the wrong person's announcing it's going to, it's going to throw me off or like, you know, um, whatever it is, like what if they play the wrong music, you know, what if I have to lift third in the flight, whatever it happens to be stuff that they just can't control they seem to have those same attitudes and somehow I'm not sure how, but I'd love your thought on it. Somehow I think it does relate back all the way back to the self-determination theory stuff we were talking about before where the concept of like self mastery and saying, Hey, there are certain things about my performance. I absolutely have agency over. I'm going to go and execute and do the best I can. on them. Um, that seems to just give people so much more mental stability on comp day. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, I think the more we can just focus on yourself and your own performances, even when we're in a world championship, the better off we're going to do. Mm. You know, like you, you absolutely don't have control over, you know, who the announcer is or, or um, what your competitor is going to lift on the platform and, and your best performance, your ultimate win or loss or placing or whatever is going to come down to you and the barbell and your coach and, and what you put on the barbell. So, um, bringing the focus back uh, is really important. Um, God, I had another thing I was going to say, but it's gone now. <laughs> you, oh, you want some elevating music? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're actually famous for our improv music, guys. Stick around for after we've farewelled Bryce. We've got, we have a sponsor for this episode. We've composed a song for them. So 
it'll be right there. Um, <laughs> Bryce, what about what about people who sit on the opposite end of the spectrum who who rather than being anxious about it really do like get excited and like the competition aspect of competing and really like really want to feel like they're going at it with a competitor. How does that influence the way you would handle them on the day? That is a lot easier to manage actually um, because you can, even if there isn't a competition, you can set up a competition either way. You can say, Mm -hmm. you know, this person is trying to beat you or you're trying to beat yourself or, um, you know, I I want you to get really hyped up here because, you know, check out this Instagram post of this person who's doing more than you. Like you need to beat them right now. So yeah. like it's really easy to set up competitions um, for those type of lifters. And ultimately, you know, there's a really common tactic in uh, sports psychology of saying, if you're anxious, that's a good thing. That's a sign that you're engaged with your sport and that you're excited about your sport. And it's a problem if you aren't anxious, or at least it's a sign that you care about what you're doing. Yeah. Which is understandable, but it doesn't really feel good to the lifter to say, okay, this is a good thing. I'm feeling really shitty right now, but it must be good. Um, Like there's a range of things for me when it comes to people talking about sports psych that like on the surface makes sense, but they just feel intellectual. Like you can't really absorb them and make it your own. So we were, we were on a podcast um, yesterday with Isabella von Weissenberg and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, Isabella ended up quoting um, Serena Williams, who said, uh, "Who's that?" <laughs> <laughs> he's got his onto us now. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh, Serena Williams said, um, "Pressure is a privilege." So this is another one of those things that makes sense, mm-hmm. but it's like an intellectual thing. So if you're feeling pressure, it doesn't feel good to hear pressure is a privilege. You know, you just want a way to deal with this. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're an athlete who's in pain uh, and you just have excruciating pain every time you squat, like it doesn't feel good to hear. Well, pain is just a biopsychosocial construct. Part of it just might be your mental experience of pain. Like, okay, <laughs> true, but yeah, but do the fucking hurt. hurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. When ang- like I've handled Alex at a few mates now, whenever he doesn't look anxious enough, I just tell him that water are here. And that just sets him off immediately. <laughs> just hide my pre-workout. <laughs> um, mate, I reckon you've told us heaps of really valuable stuff. And um, if you don't have anything to add, we might take another very quick break and then come back and hit you with our four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. So, sure. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. I, quick break. I had a hard time those. those were great questions. Weekly Weights. Welcome back to the show. We're here with Bryce. We're going to ask him the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. So the first one is, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, well, I had a hard time with this one, uh, especially considering you can go back in history as far as you can, but I could really only think recently. Um, Daniel Kahneman, he's, um, mm. he's a psychologist. Um, I've heard him talk a few times and like, so I wanted to pick people, him and, and Sam Harris are the two guys that I was picking. And I wanted to pick people that not only have like information that I wanted to know, but also just seem like cool people to, to be around with, like someone that I would actually want to have a meal with and not just like listen to a lecture from. So yeah, both of them seem kind of like friendly people who seem to have their shit together and um, someone who I'd love to have a good conversation with. So Daniel Kahneman wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. 
You did. Um, which is excellent. I actually lent it to one of my powerlifting clients the other week. Um, she's loving it as well. She's a teacher. But it's oh, nice. like, I would recommend it to anyone to read. It's a fantastic book that actually sort of helps you rationalize how you think and feel about a lot of things that you didn't even realize you were thinking and feeling about. It's brilliant and really well written. That's uh, very on brand. It's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Second. Harris is, uh, is the other guy. He is a neuroscientist and like a philosopher who um, just has opinions on anything from artificial intelligence to government and uh, kind of morality and, and the future of the human race. Yeah. He's a fantastic person to listen to as well. I know him and Jordan Peterson like to argue with each other both yeah. in person and whenever they're talking, they'll just here and there drop jibes <laughs> um, at the other guy and say, you know, this is something Sam Harris doesn't tend to get about the role of religion in morality and stuff, but it seems like a really interesting dude. Super smart, articulate. Alex, this is way over my head. All right, question, <laughs> question two. Who's your favorite athlete of all time? This could be any sport. This, this was the one I had the hardest time with. Um, I, um, I don't know. Uh, I like athletic performances, but I have a hard time finding like uh, the athlete or something like that. So I have kind of like my favorite squat bench and deadlift that I've seen. Um, uh, I used to be a volleyball um, athlete and a volleyball coach. So I love seeing just like the perfect play set up in volleyball. Um, Team USA does some stupid plays. Like the, the speed has gotten insane. Um, Brazil's awesome. Russia's awesome, but specific athletes were really tough for me. Um, just out of curiosity, what's your vertical and like, what was it when you're at your best? Right now it's probably pretty crappy. Um, <laughs> my best, it was 43 inches, which was ah, pretty high. That is very high. Cause I've noticed you're quite an upright squatter. And I remember yeah. reading at one stage and it kind of makes sense in my head that like a more upright squatting style has more transfer to a vertical jump than a more horizontal one because like the displacement, obviously if it's more like up and down would propel you up and down. I'm wondering yeah. how much of your volleyball history might've influenced your squatting style or like squatting just aptitude. Um, early on, I saw a few Olympic weightlifters and I saw their squat. I'm like, God, this looks so much better than the powerlifters I saw at mm. the time. And like <laughs> that was, that was my early exposure was, you know, multiply powerlifters and uh, the occasional low bar powerlifter. And then these Olympic high bar squatters were just making this look effortless. And I'm like, I want to do that. And it just also happened to be the stance that was strongest for me. You got to sit back more, bro. Yeah. Vertical yeah. shins, bro, please. Hips, hips, hips. <laughs> you know, like, that is Alex coaching 101. Hips and chest up. It's all he ever says. <laughs> yeah, it does work. You're like the only guy. Or, or, or girl who I can even recall who squats high bar at Worlds. Uh, yeah, there, there's a few other athletes, um, but really it's uh, it's few and far between. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Jezza squat high bar? Jezza Uepa? No, it's a bit. It's kind of low, but his legs are so short. He's yeah, so upright. Semantic. Yeah. So he squats the bars high on his back. Yeah, but his back's so big. So I guess maybe I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> All right. Question three. Um, which TV character or movie character do you most resemble? Um, God, what's that show uh, with Rami Malek? Something Robot? I, Robot. Uh, is that it? No, that's no, the... I, Robot is a movie with Will Smith. So, uh, Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot. 
Mr. Robot. I don't know. It. Yeah. So, so he's, he's like a really depressed dude. So track <laughs> out the depression from that. I'm, I'm not depressed. I'm doing pretty well these days. Um, but he's got like this kind of calculated, uh, uh, attitude to life. And, uh, is I really the, resonated with that. Is it the main guy? This guy? Uh, yeah. So you're yeah, saying yeah, personality wise, he's like you. Cause he doesn't, Rami Malek's the guy who just played Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, right? That, that's the guy. Yeah, he doesn't look at all like you. Sorry, Bryce, in case you were uh, under any illusion. I got nothing, man. Uh, also, Doctor Strange, as far as like uh, kind of personality, um, I'm digging him, or at least that's yeah. someone I want to be like. Dress sense, maybe? Yeah, I'll, I'll dig the cape. <laughs> that's mad. All right. You're, you're, um, someone, was, someone in your family was a TV star, weren't they? Yeah, my grandpa. Okay. Um, he was the grandpa on the Munsters. Oh, really? <laughs> That's, so That's yeah. amazing. That's very cool. Um, nice celebrity tinge to our podcast. Okay, question number four, the best one. So your life is being made into a montage. What song do you set it to? Um, I would go with um, something really epic. Actually, speaking of Rami Malek, um, something from Queen would be awesome. Uh, I I used to listen to a lot of Queen. Um, it just, it's just really epic, really happy music. It's, it's, it's upbeat. Uh, it sounds like it'd be a really good background music. So I, I've got all my music in different genres, but it'd be something from Queen for sure. Not Bohemian Rhapsody because then you got to like go down for murder or something. Um, no, no way. But uh, You're My Best Friend is a really good one. So I might choose that. That's pretty cute. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us, mate. We're going <laughs> to, what was that head <laughs> We don't keep the footage so you can do whatever you want. All right. Um, Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, mate. So your one final job is just to tell everybody where they can find you on the internet, how they can hire you for coaching and the rest. So give yourself the biggest plug you can. All right. Um, I am the world's best coach. Now Um, you can find me on uh, our website at thestrengthathlete.com. I recently just redid a few sections on there. So um, some good information and you can find out about our coaching. Uh, I put a lot of information out on my Instagram at Bryce underscore TSA. Um, lately, a lot of stuff on coach athlete relationships, um, training strain, uh, burnout. Um, there's lots of good stuff coming. Well, um, what about Instagram? He just said he puts a lot of stuff out on Bryce. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear that. So I was thinking about my, I was thinking about my um, next bit. Um, you were going to, you have some programs for free. You want to plug those? Yeah. Um, we just released a, a free beginner powerlifting training approach. Oh, uh, no strings attached. Uh, no secret anything. Just go to our website, go to the freebies section and download it. Um, it's, it's something we're really proud of. It's got a male-female selector. You can extend it four weeks into a, into a competition. <laughs> um, you can select exercises. Um, it's super cool. We feel like it's a really good introduction to powerlifting. We also have a free intermediate program there and then that's getting updated a little bit later this year too. Cool, man. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, any last words? So that Um, sounds really ominous. Anything you'd like to leave us with? (laughs) Um, this was a really awesome podcast. You guys are awesome hosts and, um, yeah, I'm just really happy with the podcast. Thank you guys. Oh, thrilled to have you, man. We'd love to have you again sometime. It was brilliant. Cheers. Guys, just a reminder to check out the weekly weights discount code at City Strength. So, citystrength.com.au 
or you can check out their store in Marrickville. To get the discount at checkout, you type in Weekly Weights 10. That is Weekly Weights, exactly like the start of the podcast. If you go to the Marrickville store, please wait until you're about to pay and then say Weekly Weights 10. That'd be awesome. What do you reckon, Alex? 100%. So Weekly Weights spelled W-E-A-K, week as in Will's Bench is weak. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. We'll chat next week. Citystrength.com.au Lots of powerlifting gear there for you. Hit it in your browser and wait for them to load. Then at checkout you can use our code. City Strength, City Strength, City Strength, and Weekly Weights 10. <laughs> Let's listen back to that.